Welcome back everyone to Sweet 1111. I'm Casey Barrett and today I got to sit down and talk with Public History Program Officer Keith Herbert at Auburn University and kind of his journey on how he has been exploring the history side of what happened during Bloody Sunday and how it's really made an impact on the community. Sunday is and the meaning of the work that you're doing along with that story. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the Bloody Sunday event that happened in uh, March of 1965 in Selma, Alabama, was really sort of the culmination of this much longer voting rights campaign that African Americans in Alabama had launched months before. And unfortunately, on that morning uh, in Selma, Alabama, uh, members of the Alabama State Troopers assaulted uh, peaceful demonstrators who were marching to Montgomery to protest uh, the discriminatory sort of voting laws that existed in Alabama, where uh, in a place like Dallas County, Alabama, where some was located, they had a majority minority community. Uh, you know, technically African Americans are a majority in that community, but yet only a small percentage of them were able to register to vote. You know, prior to that time, so they were sort of fighting for that. And probably even more importantly, Bloody Sunday, the event itself. Um, thanks to media, um, it was captured. It was captured on film. It was captured with newspaper reporters and photographers. The FBI was there. And, you know, these horrendous events that happened that involved, you know, tear gas and nightclubs and, you know, this or, you know, billy clubs all on the state highway of the state of Alabama. I mean, this is all out in broad daylight. There's no hiding any of this, right? This was broadcast to a nation within hours, and it really helped sort of galvanize some broader support behind the civil rights movement and it also ended up being both a very prideful thing for the marchers themselves because they succeeded in sort of drawing attention that was the point of it drawing attention to what's happening in Alabama but for the state of Alabama you know it's still to this day we're 50 plus almost 60 years from the event and you know in a world that we live in today where you just google stuff right if you google Alabama and history you know, that image, that image of state patrollers assaulting, state patrollers assaulting, you know, future Congressman John Lewis, uh, Reverend Hosea Williams and all, uh, is one of the first images that actually pops up. So, you know, and both fortunately and unfortunately, it's this dual-edged sword, um, you know, Alabama is sort of forever sort of connected to this event, right? Yeah. Yeah, and kind of going into those photos, that's the whole thing about this new discovered research is those photos that were taken during this time. What's their significance? You mentioned kind of that they were able to broadcast the story, but what's sure. kind of more the significance of just them being taken and being publicly shown? Yeah, so the photos themselves have a really long history as well because um, not only did the state troopers assault the marchers that day, but there were dozens of state troopers who were in plain clothes who were also surveilling the marchers. So they're photographing the marchers all along. And uh, fortunately, these photographs have been maintained by the Alabama State Patrol. You can actually go down in Montgomery and look at the photographs there. And at the time, they were mainly going to follow up with these folks and potentially arrest them and harass them like they had been doing for years before that. Um, but what this record provides us, though, this amazing, these hundreds of photographs, is a real detailed look at the marchers themselves. Like, we all kind of know about John Lewis and, you know, Isaiah Williams and kind of know about what happens on the little short video clips we see of that day. 
what we don't know as much about are the 600 plus archers who are part of this, these everyday, ordinary, uh, you know, we live in an age today where we're constantly telling people, young people, old people, that, you know, the key to changing the world is go do something, right? Get out there and do it. Well, these are people who went out and risked their lives and did something. Well, who were these people? You know, not all of them were career activists or anything. But many of these folks went straight from church to this march. Most of them were just um, ordinary members of the community. So what these photographs have allowed us to do is to tell a much deeper, broader story of Bloody Sunday by trying to identify as many people in the photographs as we can, but more importantly, identify their story and document their story. Uh, and you find out these really sort of rich things. For example, in the broader history of this movement, we often hear about SNCC, like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Congress, these are like two major groups, right? But the groups that get left out of those stories are the ones that kind of laid the foundation for those two groups to come to some to begin with. And when you investigate the identities of these marchers, what you find out is there were groups of high school like sophomores who were organizing and who were recruiting people to join the march, recruiting people to participate in the sit-ins that had happened in the months prior. Um, these are like 14-year-olds who really are sort of the backbone uh, of these sort of movements. But then you see people, uh, one of the more prominent figures in our photographs, and if you remind me, if you post a picture of this, I can, I can get you this picture, but one of the guys is this football coach from uh, R.B. Hudson High School, the segregated high school and so on, uh, Coach Lawrence Huggins. Uh, he showed up that day because he was a member of the movement, but he also showed up that day because most of his football team joined the march, and he wanted to be sure that he was there to either A, protect them or guide them or certainly watch for what might be happening that day. Here's a guy that had everything to lose by joining the march. He was a public employee in Dallas County working for the local school boards, very, very visible public figure. Everyone knew who this guy was, you know. And long after the TV cameras went home and the journalists went back to wherever they were, Huggins lived in that community the rest of his life. I mean, he still lives there today. So, uh, you know, stories like that that we're trying to really document. Yeah, so you talk about, um, like, the football coach, he's public, and he could be poss possibly risking his life being there. Um, what kind of benefits, though, have you seen from your ability to kind of, like, enlarge the photos and pinpoint who they are and kind of, like, have you seen it firsthand being so close to Selma? Yeah, um, well, I'd say one of the benefits is for the foot soldiers themselves. There is a movement now in Selma. I'm part of this as well. Um, there's a group led by one of the foot soldiers, Joanne Bland, and Charles Malden. Charles Malden's actually like fifth in line that day. He's right behind John Lewis and really, really nice guy. Lives up in Birmingham today. Um, but they're trying to start a foot soldiers memorial park that would honor the foot soldiers and possibly have a memorial uh, kind of like when you go to Washington, D.C. and you see the Vietnam War Memorial, the names, it, you know, something like that. Yeah. That sort of recognizes these stories and provides a place to tell it. Many of these foot soldiers are really eager to tell the story through their voice, and that's what I'm eager to do. Like, my job is to amplify their story, not rewrite their story or anything like that. And they actually get super excited that, um, you know, 60 years later, right, there are people who are really still not just interested in, um, you know, when you go to Selma, a lot of people will tell you, like, well, all these outsiders have told the story, and they don't tell it right, and they don't, you know, these are the foot soldiers telling this. And um, I think there's a good deal of sort of empowerment for the foot soldiers when they get involved in this project, and that 
you know, as a public historian, I'm trying my best to practice sort of shared authority with the folks that I'm working with and um, really, you know, amplify their stories in a way. And you see it in them and you see the excitement. And then, you know, like you've met with them, you did an interview, you may have identified one or two people. And then two days later, you start getting contacted by all the people that they know because they, you know, that initial contact, you know, kind of appreciated what you're doing or certainly liked or trusted what you're doing yeah. and kind of reach out. So, you know, that's one of the, the great benefits of this project is it's led to all of these new relationships and all of these new opportunities to even do more in the city of Selma than just document some books in a photograph, which that's important. But there's other things like, you know, raising money to preserve historic buildings, raising money for this memorial, uh, raising awareness of where some of these historic sites in the city are. You know, people come to Selma, it's just there for the Jubilee. And Jubilee, it's mostly centered around the Edmund Pettus Bridge. That's the sort of, but you know, the story is much broader than just that one site. And it takes place all across the city in places that are not held in reverence the way that, like, this is a nationally, globally significant event in the history of human rights, what happens in Selma. And there are places of it, like the site where the actual conflict, where the state troopers start, you know, unfortunately assaulting people. You know, there are places in the march that just are not preserved, and they're going they are being lost right now. So that you know, twenty years or hell, five years from now, you know, the landscape of this will be erased, and that's probably the worst thing can happen. I mean. For those who are sort of more broader, sort of interest in American history, you know, imagine a world where, you know, the battlefields of Gettysburg or something are completely erased. You go there and it's just a, uh, it'd probably just be condos today. It wouldn't even be a strip mall, it'd just be condos. Um, you know, that kind of stuff is happening. One of the sites at Selma just had a go-kart track built on it. I mean, you know, not, not. Um, another site where the marchers, most of them lived and congregated is about to be knocked down and new sort of housing put there in development. And again, some of that is good, but with no thought whatsoever about the site and maybe thinking a little creatively about how you might be able to still tell this story and perhaps still have some new housing. Yeah. You know, instead, they're just going to and just plop the new housing in there without much of a thought. So, yeah. you know, so it's a lot of those different stories and trying to go into Selma and uh, you know, initially our, our thing was more of our need. It's like, hey, we have these photos. We need to identify these folks. We'd like to. Quickly, the foot soldiers adopted that and like, hey, we want this too. And now it's really a lot more of the foot soldiers coming to us and saying, hey, our community needs this. What can you do to help? And you know, we try to you know, be driven by what they are sort of asking us to do. Yeah. And so kind of going back to those photos, what's more of like the technological method that you guys used to be able to identify these people and like enlarge them since they didn't have that back then but like what what changed to be able to, to get you guys able to do this yeah wow that's interesting um well first just just unearthing these things i mean yeah. state patrol has these photos but they're not like you know on a website mm -hmm. uh they're kind of in a, a basement of they're in the same place. So if you were in a car wreck in Alabama and State Patrol took pictures of your car accident and you needed to get those for your court hearing, mm -hmm. you would go to the same place. So you have these accident scene photos and then a box full of probably the most significant civil rights photographs you can imagine, right? Yeah. Next to other <laughs> accident crime scenes. So, so even the collection itself doesn't have 
the reverence that it sort of deserves, I mean, and so forth. So we were really fortunate we got in there and we were able to scan the photos at a really high sort of res resolution. Also, you know, this is a very multidisciplinary project. Yeah, I'm a historian, but, you know, I, I only know how to do this much of stuff, yeah. you know. So uh, over in the College of Architecture, Design, and Construction, uh, Dr. Richard Burt, uh, B-U-R-T, he is a professional surveyor, basically. And then uh, Junshan Lui, uh, who's this uh, L-I-U, Dr. Lui, he, he is a professional, uh, he like does drones and scans big landscapes and does 3D recreations of spaces. So um, all of us working together have been able to take these photographs, number one, get them at a resolution that we can enlarge and share. Because some of these, you know, you, you want to see some faces, you know, yeah. and they're kind of there. But even more importantly, what we've been able to do, because uh, Dr. Bird is a surveyor, right? We can find things that are in the photographs that are still in existence and use, um, Dr. Bird knows how this a lot more than I do, but it can actually do measurements to approximate where these folks were in space. And, and what the photos allow us to do, if you have like a hundred of these kind of lined up, right? You can actually sort of trace people's movements throughout that day. And what you find out is, what we think of as Boy Sunday as being this really narrow thing that happened in this tiny moment at this tiny place actually was spread out over about three miles worth of space. Um, it was more than just a few seconds. It was actually, you know, uh, you know, like an hour's worth of things that were happening during that time. Um, and the photographs really allow us to do that. It just gives it much depth. Um, the biggest thing, you by, by blowing up and then locating where you are and then thinking about it chronologically too, like the um, photographs, like how much time passed between this image and this image, that kind of stuff. Um, what we're able to do, like anyone who goes on like YouTube and does like Bloody Sunday, what they're going to see is the clips of the State Patrol sort of assaulting John Lewis very famously, right? And then that's kind of it. It seems like it disperses, but what people don't know, which is really amazing, is those foot soldiers that day after that initial assault so john lewis got decked he broke his skull basically that day um, several members of the community were completely um knocked out from that assault right well minutes after that the foot soldiers actually regrouped uh, just a few yards down um, they practiced their uh, non-violent uh, protest techniques that they had done before they were preparing for tear gas they're preparing for assaults and so forth and if you study like world history, it'd be like a Greek phalanx that kind of came together in like this block formation. They're all, and they basically forced the Alabama state troopers to make a decision. Were the state troopers just going to hold up and kind of wait them out? Or were the state troopers going to actually use more violence to get them to go back into Simon Cross? And the state troopers picked that last option. And again, the bravery of these foot soldiers and the heroism of, of to, to sort of make your point heard. And uh, they, as they were sitting there, we've interviewed some of them, and they were telling each other, you know, we're not going to be moved until we move, do that kind of thing. You know, nobody's turning around until they turn us around, that kind of stuff. Um, it's really sort of the epitome of sort of like civil engagement and <laughs> civil disobedience. And I think all of these things today, they're actually really good examples for anyone in America to take when we think about sort of protesting injustices or making our voices you know, heard, I guess. Yeah, and you mentioned the team that you're working with here at Auburn. Mm -hmm. um, what is kind of your collective goal of either like with the photographs specifically or kind of just being able to not relive, but kind of like, like you said, amplify the story again? 
Yeah, we'd really like to, number one, you know, for the foot soldiers who are still with us, I think it's a very good thing that most historians, we don't have a relationship with the people we write about because they're long gone, mm -hmm. right? Well, you know, for public historians, you know, we're, we're often dealing with, like, living historical actors, you know. And I think for the foot soldiers, it's important for um, institution like Auburn, okay? They're the, the flagship university in the state of Alabama, you know, for us to be reaching out through our faculty and our resources and so forth to listen to foot soldiers and to help them do what they want, which is to have their voices heard in respectful, meaningful ways. And just that dialogue, uh, many foot soldiers are actually quite um, initially surprised, first of all, that a professor from Auburn University is interested in this story, much less wants to use resources from our university to sort of, you know, help them in, in certain ways. So I think that's goal number one is, you know, helping the foot soldiers in any way that we can that raise awareness to their story. They're the ones who are really interested in preserving these sites um, and marshalling resources, and that's what Auburn, we can find resources for folks to do things but also to help um, hopefully shape some public policy in some uh, in terms of how some of these places are preserved in the future. Um, you know, there are several of these properties that are still there, that are still in sort of historic condition from, you know, 60 years ago, that are under great danger right now of being, you know, for example, in the background of one of the photographs, there's this big sign that shows up this chicken treat. It was like a, uh, like a drive-in restaurant sign was still there until like two weeks ago yeah. uh, someone bought that restaurant building and I understand but you know, at the same time you know this is where some planning 10 20 years ago could have stopped this but they bought the building and immediately started knocking down pretty much everything well you know in the world of preservation it's like part of the like historic fabric that's getting lost and the more and more that that gets lost the harder it is to tell that story in that space and the harder it's going to be hopefully when we get the resources all together to expand. Like when you go to Summit today, there's really, there is a national park site there, but for people who are used to going to national parks, you know, if you've been to like a battlefield park or you know, gone out west to like Yellowstone and Grand Canyon, so you know when you enter those spaces, you know, it, it has a certain reverence to it, it, has a certain amount of protection and preservation, all of that. Um, you know, Summit's really lacking that. Um, you know, you drive through, the site where most of this happened, and you, most people don't know. When I go to the Jubilee, people will be hanging out in that area on the east side of the bridge, and I'll be talking to folks and be like, "Yeah, this is where you know, like where you're standing right there. That's where John." And they're completely like, "Oh, they didn't know. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just unaware." And again, I think part of honoring the foot soldiers and honoring their stories and honoring that sort of civil disobedience and protest and you know, in, in American history and, and the defense of our voting rights, which is more than just the voting rights for African America. I mean, they're talking about everyone's voting rights, right? Um, you know, the best way to do that is to preserve the places where this happened so these stories can be told in a sort of referential sort of way. Yeah. And so what's next if you guys have, like, a specific plan or something? Like, what is your next step for this? Yeah, you know, I think one of our next steps is definitely to continue working with groups like the Foot Soldier Memorial Board, um, Foot Soldier Memorial Park. So they're, they're creating a park. And that's really helping us network further with, you know, it takes time to do this kind of research because so much of this, in order to get uh, identifications and stories, you have to build trust and you have to build relationships. 
and more importantly, you have to build a real prolonged presence. Uh, there are lots of universities from uh, there are a lot of Ivy League schools actually that are involved in SOMA that do like civil rights stuff, but they're down there for like one weekend a year or something like that, and then they go back to wherever they're from and make a big deal about being in SOMA, you know. Well, you know, we're here, right? We're in Alabama. It's not that far from here. You know, for us to be there, like, I'm, I'm in SOMA pretty much every week, you know, and, and oftentimes several days a week. You know, being that constant presence to help hopefully bridge that gap. You know, Auburn, uh, you know, has its own sort of issues with these topics of race and so forth. Still, unless it changed in the last couple of months or something, but... You know, we still have the lowest like percentage of African-American students of any SEC school. Um, you know, there's a perception and a reality to sort of discrimination at times at Auburn, uh, no doubt. And, you know, Auburn is seen as a, uh, you know, as a privileged sort of white institution that's kind of on an island from the rest of Alabama. Well, to me, um, you know, projects like this are really critical to kind of, pulling Auburn in, in a slightly different direction and investing. You know, Auburn looks big. You know, we want to draw students from all over the country and all over the world. I think that's great. But while we're doing that, um, we need to remember that, you know, there are folks right here in our own backyard, right, that are in need of our assistance. And we need their assistance because, you know, these foot soldiers have as much to teach us about the future of our university as we have to share with them. So it's you know, to me, you know, it'd be nice to have an exhibit, maybe a book, a website, all of that's good. You know, those are all things, but the bigger, the bigger thing is that hopefully a permanent relationship that benefits Auburn in a way, not financially, but just in the sort of mentorship and the advice and the presence that Auburn could gain from, you know, playing a role in a place. I mean, you know, the president of the United States was in Selma like two weeks ago, right? I mean, you know, Auburn can benefit from sort of getting more fully engaged in these communities. Yeah, and my last question for you sure. is how even, like, not only as, like, a professor, but as someone who's just going through, like, the learning process of this, how has, like, going through this research, what has that done just for you individually? Yeah, um, I mean, on a personal level, I've developed some really great friendships along the way and I've learned to um, you know I do a lot of like black community history already across the south it's kind of what I do um, so I'm used to entering communities where there's long-standing mistrust between people that look like me and the people in those communities and all but the most beneficial thing for me is just a constant reminder it's nothing new that I learned but just the reminder that we are human beings and you know, the act of listening and caring and, again, that sort of presence, right? None of that really costs a ton of money to do other than maybe a tank of gas every now and then. And it's so, I wouldn't say easy, but it's so, you know, we can do these things, you know, by, you know, just sort of showing up in communities and talking and listening to folks and trying to, glean from them sort of next steps and I think that would be beautiful for you know places like Auburn University right is you know help help lead us uh, you know to these places so for me it's widening my sort of network of folks who I can then bring to campus at times or bring the campus to them uh, for example um, you know through this project again I won't get too much in detail but 
you know, the tornado hit, uh, you know, someone, you know, earlier in January, right? Well, Auburn's got a project going on right now where uh, construction folks are going to be building, like, pre-made houses and shipping them to Selma, actually. You know, uh, Selma University is going to host, uh, we're hosting a national endowment for the humanities workshop this summer. Selma University is going to host two weeks of that for us. I mean, teachers and people from around the country are going to come to Selma University, uh, you know, because of this partnership and these relationships that we had. So um, there's lots of things like that where, you know, Auburn is helping in ways to help make a uh, sort of more of a presence here, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so I much. Can, I can ramble a lot. No, oh my gosh. Anything good, is definitely good, helpful good, for this good, story. Good. But thank you so much for sharing this story and being able to kind of just let Auburn know that you're here and you're local. So yeah. it's good. Yeah. It's good to get that information out. Mm -hmm.